Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead, we'll discuss the latest climate assessment, what it means for the Midwest. School shootings are a reality, and we hear how some districts are preparing for incidents they hope never happen. We'll talk with Illinois' homelessness chief about what she envisions for the future. During National Transgender Awareness Week, we hear about a central Illinois man without a church he can call home. Sewing is a skill, and many are taking classes to learn how to do it. We'll also learn more about a collection of love letters involving the controversial author Henry Miller. They're housed at an Illinois university. And we talk with some public health workers about the growing difficulties in doing their jobs. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Rising seas, hotter summers, and more rain are all on the way and in some cases are already here. The Biden administration's National Climate Assessment came out this week. It means hotter and wetter conditions for the Midwest. WBEZ and Grist regional climate reporter Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco talked with Mary Dixon about it. What does all of this mean for the Midwest? Sure. So compared to just 100 years ago, the Midwest is a warmer and wetter place than it used to be. And as temperatures climb, precipitation is expected to increase throughout the region too, which will mean wetter springs and winters and hotter, more variable summers. So if emissions continue at the going rate, things here could move pretty quickly between instances of extreme heat, so like think droughts, and instances of heavy rainfall, so perhaps flooding. And all this, and all that doesn't just make life in urban environments like Chicago more precarious. It also has some pretty serious implications for the Midwest as an agricultural powerhouse, as crop yields are affected and growing ranges begin to shift. So it's not just that it's going to be hotter and wetter, it's also there's going to be more extremes, and it's also going to affect one of our top businesses in this region, which is agriculture. Yeah, that's right. I think one of the things that they're looking at is corn and soybean, which from the Midwest makes up over 30% of all of the world's exports of those commodities. And corn is one of these commodities that's expected to get hit the worst by this variability between extreme heat and extreme wet. Okay. Let's pull back for just a second and go over what is the National Climate Assessment. The National Climate Assessment is this major undertaking by the federal government to catalog climate change across the country and then make sense of what it looks like now and what it'll look like in the future. They do this region by region. In total, there's 10. So think Northeast, Midwest, and so on. In all, it ends up being a kind of guide or snapshot of climate change today. There's over 750 contributors to the assessment, just to give you a sense of how many people go into this. And I think one of the major takeaways this assessment, this is the fifth one, Mm. um, is that the U.S. is warming faster than the global average. And, and what does it tell us generally, nationally, about the state of climate change? You know, what's it tell us? Well, it tells us that climate change is happening everywhere, and humans are driving it. So, for example, annual temperatures are increasing across the board, heavy precipitation is increasing almost everywhere, and sea levels are rising almost everywhere. The takeaway here is that without deeper cuts in global net emissions, climate risks in the U.S. will increase. That goes for wildfires, flooding, crop failure, tropical cyclones, uh, drought, and heat waves. 
And is there anything more that the report tells us that we can be doing to try to make this better? Yes, Mary. Yes, it does. All hope is not lost. Adaptation plans and mitigation efforts are taking off all across the country. There's this, bit, there's this really useful uh, chart in the assessment, and it shows by region how states are doing in terms of uh, adaptation and mitigation actions. And in the Midwest, Illinois is leading the pack. And these kind of efforts include all kinds of stuff like climate smart agriculture, so think cover crops, and investing in green infrastructure, so perhaps urban tree canopies. But fundamentally, what this report tells us is to keep our eyes on the prize, and that is that carbon emissions need to be cut drastically, so net zero by 2050, to avoid the really severe climate impacts. That's Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco. His coverage made possible through a partnership between WBEZ and GRIST, a nonprofit independent media organization dedicated to telling stories of climate solutions and a just future. There are a ton of public health issues to deal with, from dipping childhood vaccination rates to teen mental illness and overdose deaths. And the key players who do the job and deal with all of this say they are underfunded and burned out. Side Effects Public Media's Noah Taborda reports that many local public health departments in the Midwest are struggling with limited resources and deepening public mistrust since the pandemic getting a one-year-old ready for her vaccinations. Charlotte Square prepares vaccines for dozens of kids and adults each day. She's going to get a DTaP today, a pneumonia shot, a hip shot, um, and a hepatitis A, which will be five injections Square is an immunization nurse at the Wyandotte County Health Department Clinic in Kansas City. Counting other roles, she's been with the department for nearly two decades. But these days, Square notices things are different. There aren't quite as many people coming into the clinic for appointments especially children. Square says this is the sharpest drop in appointments she's seen since before the pandemic. She says that goes for everything from COVID vaccines to measles, mumps, and rubella. One of my goals is to work with the school nurses on bringing those students back in. So the going to outreaches, that's going to help a great deal. Square believes schools getting pushback on their vaccination requirements and misinformation worsened by the pandemic are some of the reasons why less people are rolling up their sleeves for the jabs. And it's a nationwide issue. Compared to the 2020-2021 school year, vaccine coverage dropped nearly a full percent for all vaccines. That's nearly 30,000 less kids vaccinated. Adrian Casalotti is with the National Association of County and City Health Officials. She says local health departments play a critical role in making sure people are properly vaccinated. They all do a lot of education around the importance of vaccines, and then they work also to try and ensure that there's access where you might not see it. So they help bring vaccines to make it easier so that you don't have to plan your day around it. But these health departments are fighting an uphill funding battle. They saw federal and state governments pump money in during the pandemic. Now, most of that is gone. Even the leftover funding is likely not usable for other public health efforts because it's earmarked for COVID. And if she should have a reaction, I do have an EpiPen here that I would have to use on her. And in Kansas City, departments are picking up the pieces of the pandemic in hopes they can rebuild public trust and decrease this hesitancy and misinformation. But limited resources stand in the way of that. Ray DeLugalike is with the Jackson County Health Department. He says the public has to be on the same page to ensure proper support and investment flow into health departments. It definitely requires a larger public discourse about, you know, what we value as a society and where we're going as a society as it pertains to, you know, growth and expectations of life and, and ability to have a quality life.
At least 30 states, including Iowa, Indiana, Missouri, Kansas, and Kentucky in the Midwest have a limited public health authority in some way. Couple that with burnout and limited resources, and you get a mass exodus. DeLuca Leike estimates only one-fifth of Jackson County's workforce remains from before the pandemic. And at least three directors have left their posts since COVID in the metro area alone. Charlie Hunt is the director of the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment. You have to really help build up and maintain an adequate public health infrastructure that we can respond to whatever comes along uh, so that we can be better prepared for the next pandemic. He says to do the day-to-day work, departments need a strong foundation. Right now, they have to take a piecemeal approach. I'm Noah Taborda, SideFX Public Media. A treasure trove of letters from controversial author Henry Miller, stored in Bradley University's Special Collections Center, offer a glimpse not only into the writer's inner thoughts, but also those of the woman he corresponded with on and off for more than 15 years. Irma Stein was a Bradley University alum and donated her letters for Miller in 1995, but she requested they not be unsealed until after her death. Libby Tronez is the head of Bradley Special Collections. She, along with the Access Services Coordinator Abigail Spear and the Miller Scholar James Decker, talk with Tim Shelley about the collection. The reason we have this collection is that an alumna of Bradley named Irma Stein had a multi-year uh, uh, correspondence uh, friendship uh, with Henry Miller. and. Toward the end of her life, she, and this would have been in the mid-1990s when she's 91, she had a sense that there was something important about this literary friendship, uh, this uh, pile of correspondence and and books that he had sent her over the years um, that she didn't want to uh, go to somebody who wasn't going to value it. Um, And uh, she approached the Special Collection Center at Bradley in, I think, 1995, and donated the materials, um, but she also requested that they remain closed and her anonymous till after her death. Um, and so it's interesting that despite the uh, obscenity trials and, of course, in 64, um, the Supreme Court of the United States saying that, you know, Miller can't be constitutionally banned. In the U.S., there's still this stigma about his work and the topic of sex and talking about sex in the uh, in the public or openly, that Irma Stein never shook. And so sh- there is that secrecy still when she donated the collection, even though she chose to preserve it and, and leave it with us. Now it's been on the shelf in our vault uh, for, you know, since 1995, but she mm-hmm. passes away in, in 2002. So why the collection ha- wasn't made available then, I don't know. I think it had probably been forgotten about. And when we say the collection, just to describe our radio listeners, we have sitting in front of us a, a binder full of materials, a variety of other things, a few books in front of us. How how big is the actual collection? It um, So it, because they're letters, a lot of it can be condensed into about two boxes. Um, but there are numerous books, of, about over a dozen or so, of books that uh, Irma Stein preserved, as well as multiple binders of letters spanning. um, The book of the collection of the letters starts primarily in like 41 and 42. And throughout like the mid 1940s, it starts to taper off. Um, She had enlisted in the Women's Army Corps. And I think, unless we just have a lot of letters that just didn't get donated, 
correspondence uh, really does start to taper off and you know, I imagine it was a big case of just life getting in the way. Uh, you know, Miller ended up getting married, having children, um, and uh, Irma started to, you know, get on with the rest of her life because for a lot of her um, life, she seemed to have just been sort of floating through and not really attaching herself to much. Um, when they met, she was living in Chicago and working as a secretary, I think. Like a bookkeeper yeah. at a gas company. Yeah. Um, and so it was through her correspondence with Miller that we start to see where she starts to attach herself to something in life where she, you know, enlists in the Women's Army Corps. And then after she gets out, she spends time in Europe and then she attends Bradley. And then um, there are a few letters in the later years, in the 50s and the 60s, um, but there's really not much after that. Yeah, and those letters aren't, um, uh, Abby didn't mention this, but I should, we have one letter in our collection by Irma Stein, mm -hmm. um, and the rest are from Henry Miller or uh, Henry Miller's friends and colleagues who he's connected Irma Stein with. And um, so one of the things we're hoping for with the announcement of this collection, which is now open to researchers and will be online soon, is that you know Henry Miller scholars out there or family connected to Irma Stein in this area will reach out and let us know if there are more letters from her. Um, who we've had to kind of get to know Irma through, in between the lines of, of Henry's, Henry's letters to her. I mean, Irma sounds like a, a really fascinating person. How, how did she become connected with Henry Miller initially? So she frequented the Argus Bookshop in Chicago, and the, uh, the owner of the bookshop, Ben Abramson, he had received a letter from Irma about one of Miller's books that she had purchased. And he found the letter, you know, interesting. And so he sent the letter on to Henry Miller. And then Henry Miller responded. And then from then on, shortly after when Miller was in Chicago, they met in person. Wow. And it, just to chime in, Abramson uh, published some of Miller's works. So that's, that's why the, the good personal connection between Abramson and Miller. So we're talking back in the 40s. These books were banned back then, right? Or... Most of, most of those books, um, uh, so Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, uh, and Black Spring were banned. He also had quite a few collections of essays, and those essays were not banned. So um, in, in uh, 1941, um, The Wisdom of the Heart, which I believe you, you brought here, mm -hmm. um, was published, and uh, it's, it's not a sexy book uh, at all. It's you know literary criticism, thoughts on writing, and things like that. And so, um, those books were published. He was trying to make a name for himself, so that potentially some of those more risque books might be more accepted. And just to, just to talk a little bit about the contents of the letters, both from I guess a, a personal perspective and also a scholarly perspective, uh, what's what's in these letters, and why are they important, kind of to the broader uh, you know scholar scholarly picture? So I think that um, I, I brought some letters and might read a little bit of a little bit from them if there's time. Uh, I think that obviously Henry Miller scholars and people interested in Henry Miller, his fans, right, are would be interested in these letters um, because we don't know everything about Henry Miller and this is another uh, part of his life that until now has been kind of hidden in our vault on the third floor of our library. Um, but I think people interested in 
um, social history, uh, the disruption of the interwar years in the U.S., women's history, gender studies, um, would be interested in these letters again because it's you know Henry Miller talking to this single white woman in the Midwest who, uh, as Abby says, is really struggling to find her place. Uh, she has very, she feels very ordinary uh, to me and very familiar. I think, and I think Abby and I both really. Um, you know, shared a lot of Irma's concerns about, well, you know, what is the future um, for us? What, uh, how can we make uh, a meaningful life? Um, what if we're wasting our time on, on, on this or that? And so these are things that people go through in their lives, and Irma has all those anxieties that we can glean from Henry Miller's letters. And so I think that anyone that can, you know, have the patience to meet her through his letters uh, will find an interesting kind of struggle for again a single woman living in the Midwest with her own uh, lack of experience you know in her late 30s with sexual intimacy right and she's communicating with him about this in the letters and so I think it's at a time when people just didn't talk about sex right she is talking about sex with uh, Henry Miller in this correspondence. That's Libby Tronis, Abigail Spear, and James Decker talking about Bradley University's Henry Miller Collection. We've got more to come on Statewide. We'll take a closer look at school shootings and how some districts are preparing for them. That's next on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. New federal data shows in the 2021-22 school year, there were nearly 200 school shootings with fatalities. That is the largest number ever. Peter Medlin reports many districts are investing in new school safety training and technology. And a note for listeners, this story includes descriptions of violence. Jimena Sanchez wraps a combat application tourniquet around her arm. She secures the Velcro band and twists the windlass as tight as she can to stop life-threatening bleeding. Sanchez is a fifth grade teacher, only weeks into her first year at the Kankakee School District. But she's not in an emergency. She and a group of other teachers are taking a Stop the Bleed course. It's a program that started back in 2015 to be essentially CPR training for bleeding. And as the rate of mass shootings and school shootings continue to rise, more and more schools like Kankakee are training their teachers how to stop the bleed. Dana Arsenault is a trauma coordinator at Riverside Medical Center in Kankakee, and she's one of the nurses leading the training. So we teach tourniquet care, and we teach how to put pressure and how to find bleeding, what life-threatening bleeding is, what non-life-threatening bleeding is, and basically we teach them how to stop it. She says the number one cause of preventable death in trauma is bleeding because it only takes two minutes. And Arsenault says two ways to identify life-threatening bleeding are if it has a pulse, or if it's pooling. The teachers take turns applying the military-grade tourniquets on each other and themselves. Arsenal coaches them through school shooting scenarios and uses a fake leg to show how to properly stuff gauze into a wound. If you're not safe, you can't help others. No gauze in the classroom? Grab a shirt or a flag off the wall if you need to apply pressure to a wound. School lanyards? Make great makeshift tourniquets. And the educators see that the combat tourniquets only cost about $20 on Amazon if they want to get some for their classroom go-bags. And since they're teachers, the trauma nurse talks about how to use these techniques when you're saving small children from bullet or knife wounds. So a lot of times you don't even have to put a tourniquet on them. You can just put pressure. They are not going to be sitting there nice and calm, right? So we have to distract the Jesus out of them. This is another good job for all of those little helpers in the room who want to help out, get somebody in their face, 
and you need to hide, hide whatever is going on. So if you place a tourniquet on, you're going to cover it up so that they can't see it. Sanchez knows it's necessary and thought the training was helpful, but it's still really sad. She's just a few weeks into her teaching career, and it's already something her 10-year-old fifth grade students bring up to her. Literally, like, when my kids first came into my classroom, they were like, oh, there's a closet in there. Like, so if someone came and shot the school, like, we'll all go inside the closet. And it's like, it was just really sad. Like, I'm glad that they're thinking about their safety, but I just was kind of like, that I, they didn't have to. At Rockford Public Schools, they're investing heavily into school safety technology. The district is spending $2.5 million on new Evolve weapons detection systems. They're not metal detectors. It uses AI and sensors to identify if a person likely has a weapon. Jason Barthel is the chief information officer for Rockford Public Schools, and he says they've installed the systems at every high school starting this fall, and that students walk through the doors as usual with a few staff members monitoring the system in case of an alert. I have a tablet in front of me and it'll put like a red box around where that alert was. I can pull that student beside, continue letting everybody else walk through. He says the system was developed for arenas, stadiums, and amusement parks, but over the past few years, hundreds of school districts like Rockford have installed them. We send about 8,000, a little over 8,000 kids through this thing on a daily basis in about 25 minutes. Um, and we're seeing, uh, we started off uh, about 8 to 11 percent alert rate, alarm rate. That means around 10% of students are pulled off to the side to be searched after setting off the alarm. But it's not weapons that are setting it off. It's eyeglass cases, Chromebooks, among other everyday objects. Barthel says they've yet to have a real weapon identified with the system, and he says he expects the false alarm rate to go down. A 2022 BBC report questioned if Evolve systems are as effective as they claim, but Barthel says that's not a concern. And Barthel says the district paid for the Evolve system with funds already allocated to their technology budget. We've heard from parents and the community through surveys that people are concerned about safety and security in the building. So let's give this, let's add this to our tool set and we can do it without costing, essentially without costing the taxpayer another dollar. Mass shooting fears aren't going away. And since schools can't pass legislation, all they can do is apply a tourniquet or build up defenses to make students, staff, and families feel more protected when they walk into class or drop their kids off. I'm Peter Medlin. The Little Street Arts Center in Chicago has seen a surge in demand for beginner sewing classes. In fact, classes there have been full for the past two years. Anna Savchinka stopped by to find out about the fun and sometimes serious reasons people are picking up the craft. On a recent gloomy morning in Studio 310, Anya Lichtenau is ironing down the edges of her black canvas fabric. I fold and then iron straight away. It's covered in skulls. Her eight-year-old daughter picked it to match her skeleton costume for Halloween. Lichtenau then moves to her workstation and revs up her machine. Where does your mind go while you're sewing? Quite frankly, no, but it's just going empty. I mean, I, I still need to concentrate to keep it straight, but all I do is I check that my one line of the fabric is aligned with the foot, and then I just go for it. And you're, it's better than any yoga. You, you just go, shh. That feeling is partially what drew the clumsy and slightly impatient Lichtenau to sewing. As she describes herself, the former math teacher recently moved to Chicago with her family from the UK and wanted to try her hands at something unrelated to mathematics, something more creative. 
Amanda Dazzo also wanted to tap into her creative side when she signed up for the class together with her mom, Donna Co. They're spending some quality time together as it's rare for Donna to visit Amanda from the Philippines. We're making a tote bag. Uh, we've already made an apron. I bought a sewing machine. What drew you to it? Um, I think it's just like empowering to be able to make things um, with my own hands and um, it's also challenging but fulfilling. The two petite ladies say that for them, learning to sew has been game-changing. Because we're short, <laughs> you know, we always have to buy pants where we have to have it, you know, cut and, you know, stitched. It's just like so expensive. Now they're tailoring their own pants. And we're like calculating how much we saved. Donna stretches out her leg and shows me her freshly hemmed Adidas sweats. She says she's thinking of making mix and match pillowcases, maybe some bed sheets. Amanda's planning on sewing her siblings' gifts this Christmas. They say the ideas began to flow right after their first class. It was funny because we're like in my apartment, we're like telling each other like all these like crazy ideas that we have. It's like we can't even like sleep because we're like thinking of things that we want to make. It can get overwhelming, especially with all the sewing bloggers Amanda has started following on social media. And the TikToks her siblings keep sending her for all the things they want her to make. But social media has also been a big player in getting more people interested in the craft, especially after the pandemic. For Yaira Oliveras, the pandemic made her want to pursue something she could have a physical connection to, like the soft plaid fabric she's feeding under the steady thrumming of her sewing machine. During a chit-chat break, Oliveras tells the class how her intense marketing job burns her out. Uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm not happy, I'm not healthy, I'm like in my worst shape of my life, um, and I don't have time with for myself, for my kids, for my husband or anyone. I was working on weekends, and I said, uh, it's either my health and my sanity or this job. So she quit, and several months later signed up for a sewing class at Lil Street. Now, she's picking out her own fabrics and even dreaming about maybe starting her own sewing-related business. She says it's given her back a sense of autonomy. I think people have realized that um, you can take ownership of your life in so many different ways, and, um, and this is a way of finding yourself in that space, you know, um, uh, whether it's this or any other creative outlet. On the soft chunk of the WBEZ News. When you turn on the TV these days, it's easy to find a dating show. The Bachelor, Love Island, Love is Blind, to name a few. And even one focused on farmers. Fox's Farmer Wants a Wife wrapped up its first season. The show got Harvest Public Media's Excaret Nunez wondering what dating is like for farmers and ranchers. And she started by visiting one of the show's contestants. Oklahoma rancher Landon Heaton never expected to wind up on TV. Then one day, he got an Instagram message from Fox. They approached me to do this show, and I said no 150 times, but the 151st, I said yes. Heaton calls himself a rancher first and a farmer second. In the show, Farmer Wants a Wife, Heaton is one of four farmers from across the country who are set up with single women from big cities to show them life on the farm. Farming and ranching is in my blood, but my lifestyle is not the easiest. My house is kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, nearest neighbor's two and a half miles away, and dating apps are great, but you can only set that perimeter so wide. Heaton is 35 and lives alone about an hour outside of Oklahoma City. 
near a small town called Coyle. Not only does living in a town of about 350 people limit his dating prospects, he says the demand of working on a farm also took over his life. Why am I going to go out to the bars when i got to wake up at 6 in the morning and go check calves? Or it's calving season, or you've got whatever it is, and so that's kind of the pattern I've found myself in. As much as he loves his ranch, he says joining the show made him realize how valuable it is to find someone special. You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what life you you build for yourself. If you don't have someone to share that with or pass that down to, then what'd you build it for? Every year, more and more young people are leaving their small farming communities behind, shrinking the dating pool for the 20 and 30-year-olds that stay. Kenneth Johnson is a demographer and sociologist at the University of New Hampshire. He says rural farming counties have lost about 40% of young adults each decade since the 1950s. Farming has continued to get bigger and more mechanized, and so there's less opportunities in farming itself. And often the opportunities for higher education or for going to the military would draw people out of that community, and many of them who leave don't come back. Some dating sites want to make finding love a little easier for people living in rural areas, like the popular dating site Farmers Only. City folks just don't get it. Farmers Only is a niche online dating site for farmers, ranchers, and rural people to connect and has attracted over 10 million members since it launched in 2005. Michael Gober is the marketing manager of Farmers Only. He says despite the name, the dating site is meant for people with similar small town values to find each other more easily. They want somebody who is accepting of their lifestyle, somebody who's accepting of their work ethic and their work-life balance, and wants to make a life together in rural America. For some, that might mean driving long distances in order to date. I was always kind of an out-of-town girlfriend kind of guy. That's Chris Dowling. He's 30 and recently married. He says he met his wife on the dating app Bumble while visiting some friends in Oklahoma City. He would drive about three hours from his family's farm to visit her in the city for every date. Before he was married, he says he'd look for relationships outside of his hometown of Alva because he wasn't really interested in dating people he had known since the second grade. If I wanted to explore a dating pool in Alva, there's going to have to be, you know, the same people. I guess it was easier to date outside of what my norm would be, right? He and his wife, Kendall, currently live in a suburb of Oklahoma City. But he says he dreams of moving back to his hometown with his wife one day to raise their future kids on the farmland he loves and grew up on. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Excarat Nunez. Steel continues to be the dominant industry in northwest Indiana, as it has been for more than a century. While the mills have provided good-paying jobs, they've also been a major source of air pollution. And as Michael Puente tells us, a disproportionate number of those people breathing in the toxins are black and Latino residents, like Kimmy Gordon of Gary. Gordon is the head of Brown Faces Green Spaces, an environmental advocacy group. I spoke to her this week at the Gary Public Library about tougher federal regulations proposed for steel mills. I first want to know what's it like to live in Gary and be surrounded by those huge mills and how does it impact her day-to-day -day life? Uh, currently, well, um, I think 
we all have some form if long-term living in Gary will all have some form of respiratory uh, ailment or distress whether it be during allergy season um, or whether it be chronic um, my son in particular has uh, he was born with respiratory uh, issues as we know living in pollution rates as high as those of in Gary Indiana um, can affect not only the air that we breathe but the bodies you know of our embryos and so it's in utero that also respiratory uh, issues can develop um, through those trimester phases well Kimmy the Biden administration is proposing new regulations to force steel producers to reduce their emissions in your opinion are those regulations stringent enough the recent proposed regulations coming through the EPA uh, for uh, steel regulations are kind of a small, tiny dent in, you know, a really, really big mountain. And 15% reduction is like taking a glass of oil that's got 100 ounces in it, taking 15 ounces out, and then putting water in that. If you can visualize what that looks like, that's what, you know, in, in you know, the narrative, that's essentially what we're getting. It's like we're still seeing, smelling, feeling, breathing, bathing in, you know, these chemicals, but we're going to do it at a 15% less rate. It doesn't make much sense to me. I believe it's a good start. Well, Kimmy, your group is on the forefront of this fight against polluters. Are you getting enough support from other Northwest Indiana residents, many of whom may depend on those mills staying open? Can there be a healthy balance between the mills and protecting the environment? I do believe there can be a balance. Um, as a collective, now that environmental justice is at the forefront of funding opportunities and advocacy opportunities, we see more people in support of Gary right now than ever before. Gary is in a crisis. We are in environmental justice city, one of the top three. Uh, years of degradation, and now our house is on fire and we need help. And I think a lot more people are seeing that. If you want to talk about environmental justice, Gary, Indiana is that poster child. Gary, Indiana is that city in this region that's been affected, you know, far further than any of the other cities surrounding us. Well, Kimmy Gordon is head of Brown Faces, Green Spaces in Gary. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michael. Working on the problem of homelessness in Illinois, we'll talk with the person filling a new position in the state that's just ahead. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Christine Haley was appointed state homelessness chief in September 2021 after Governor J.B. Pritzker signed an executive order that created the role. In that capacity, Haley leads the state's efforts to decrease homelessness in Illinois, improve outcomes for people who experience homelessness, and strengthen safety nets. She talked with R. Maureen McKinney. The governor launched several initiatives to work on the issue of homelessness. Can you speak to those? and what funding is available. So in September of 2021, Governor Pritzker signed an executive order to fight homelessness. And that executive order creates three entities. It creates the Interagency Task Force on Homelessness, which is charged with understanding how we can 
align state resources and state strategies to address homelessness. It includes the creation of the Community Advisory Council on Homelessness. So the name of our plan is called Home Illinois, and its goal is to work towards ending homelessness in our state. That included an, an increase of $85 million to be able to support people who are living doubled up with family and friends and those who are living outside. Some of the projects that we support include more shelter. So we have um, more money in the Illinois Department of Human Services uh, emergency and transitional housing program to support the expansion of the availability of shelter beds. Um, we've invested in more prevention dollars and then finally, and then it also includes our money for more permanent housing resources, right, to help support folks as they are moving from um, being in shelter to um, a permanent home of their own. What about the migrant issue? Have those efforts been difficult for the state, and has it forced resources to be pulled from other programs? So our work in Home Illinois is to ensure that all people have a safe and affordable place to call home. Right? So we really understand that if people who have been homeless in our communities for months uh, or years or those folks who are in a housing crisis and have arrived to Illinois recently, that our work and our goal is to understand how we're able to support all people who are having a housing crisis. And in many shelters across our state, we know that um, shelter providers are incredibly committed uh, to be able to support all people that seek their help, including those who are newly arrived, and that we have uh, funding that supports um, all, all populations. So I wouldn't phrase it as that it's been pulled from one group to serve another. I think it's that our mission is really to see how we can make our crisis housing response system stronger for all people uh, by investing in, in all. Are there particular needs that rise higher, maybe families with children, veterans, the mentally ill, students? So part of our work is ensuring that all populations are served in the, in the models and in the ways that can best help those specific populations for their individual needs, but not prioritizing one group or, or another, right? So we know that all people who are experiencing homelessness do so because of some type of economic crisis. That the dominant kind of thing that we think about is why someone is homeless is because of their mental illnesses or because of substance use when the majority of people who are experiencing homelessness do not have a mental illness or a substance use disorder is that they don't have um, the income uh, or that, that rents are way too high in our marketplace to be able to afford a home. And so our work is understanding uh, how we support all people, be that if it's a veteran, if it's a person who is fleeing domestic violence situation, if it's uh, a parent and their children, if it's a single adult who has had some type of, of crisis, that we want to ex support all people all now. Because as we understand, housing is a human right, 
and we want to be able to support the implementation of making that that right a reality for all Illinoisans. How does the need to address homelessness differ in um, different parts of the state, including urban, rural, and small urban communities like Springfield? All over our state, uh, be that rural, uh, rural communities are urban and suburban communities, that there is homelessness in every community that we know, uh, and that we do, though, want to understand what are the specific strategies that are needed to, to tailor um, the responses adequately in rural communities. At the end of the day, we know that folks need a safety net, right? So be that in Springfield, Decatur, um, in, in parts of Southern Illinois and, and Northern Illinois, we know that a safety net, an adequate safety net, so that when someone does have a housing crisis, that there's a resource for them on the other side is at the basis of prevention. And then we also understand that for those households who do become homeless, that access to affordable housing, sometimes affordable housing with wraparound support is needed to be able to help that family stay housed, uh, which is our ultimate uh, hope. We understand that in rural areas that homelessness may look different, um, as far as being less less visible to communities, right? That um, if someone is living in an abandoned barn or along a riverbed uh, and away from where others are living, they might not be as seen as those who may be in urban areas uh, and where it's more visible. But that doesn't mean that homelessness doesn't exist in those areas. So part of our jobs is understanding how and rural communities that there's more outreach and, and education so that folks do know when there is, they do encounter a housing crisis, how to get help. What are some of the barriers the state faces in terms of its goals on homelessness? One of our the challenges is just around provider capacity, right? That we need more people interested in working in this field of work. So we we need to understand that, you know, that really thinking about how more people might want to be involved in working at a shelter or working for a housing organization and really thinking about how we can build the workforce so that we can support more people um, there. I think another thing is really understanding where we have the opportunity to welcome people um, who are experiencing homelessness and creating neighborhoods that are um, that are open to ha permanent housing uh, and or shelters for folks who are homeless. So I think that um, sometimes when when homeless service providers are looking to uh, open up a shelter or open up a permanent housing apartment for folks who are experiencing homelessness, that sometimes communities say, no, that's not, we don't want that type of housing in our neighborhood. I think that that is, is known as the not in my backyard or nimbyism, but that what we really do need is that folks um, experiencing homelessness come from all walks of life, and we need to make sure that we have available spaces and that neighborhoods can say, yes, we welcome our neighbors. It's better to have our neighbors living in a safe, in a safe home than living outside, so really thinking about how people can be welcoming um, if there is a is a 
a shelter or housing moving into your neighborhood. But it occurs to me you may have information on how big the homeless population is in Illinois. So we estimate that about 120,000 people in Illinois experience homelessness. About 44,000 people each year experience literal homelessness, meaning living in a shelter or living in an outside or living in an abandoned building or a car. And then about 70, 75,000 people uh, live in, uh, in doubled-up situations, meaning those who are temporarily living with family and friends. Some people might call that couch surfing, so living with a friend, staying for a few days, moving to another friend. It's about 120,000 people in Illinois each year that experience homelessness. Christine Haley is the state homelessness chief, and she spoke with Maureen McKinney. National Transgender Awareness Week is a way to increase understanding about trans people and the issues they face. A long-standing struggle for many in the trans community is the conflict they feel between their identities as queer people and their faith within Christian denominations, including the Catholic Church. Owen Henderson with Illinois Public Media reports that's left a trans man in Champaign without a church he can truly call home. Harrison Price remembers when he first started feeling unwelcome in the Catholic Church. In the bulletin, there was a big note that had an image, like, you know, bathroom sign type image of a man and a woman holding hands. It was 2015 when the Supreme Court was considering a case about marriage equality. And it was like, uh, same-sex marriage is not God's way. Like, one man, one woman is right. That was the first time when I was like, I felt that dread. And Though Price hadn't fully come to understand his gender identity, he knew he wasn't straight. Seeing that sort of hateful message, at least for me, really reinforced the idea that, like, not only are there people in general who are not safe here, but I'm not safe here. And that started Price's journey away from his Catholic upbringing in Missouri. For a time, he rejected religion, but after moving to Champaign-Urbana in 2021, he tried a different branch of Christianity. They've just said, I didn't think that this was possible. That's Reverend Leah Roberts Moser of Community United Church of Christ in Champaign. I didn't think it was possible for me to be who I am, who God created me to be, who I have always known myself to be, um, and for me to be part of a community of faith. Since 1996, CUCC has publicly advocated for LGBTQ plus acceptance. Roberts Moser also conducts blessings for people choosing new names to align with their gender identities. It's so powerful to get to preside at that kind of ritual, um, to be able to invoke the same sort of words that are in the baptism liturgy, um, to be able to ask, by what name shall we call you? Though Price is an active member of CUCC, he feels conflicted because he thinks of himself as a Catholic. But I think the social messages and the general attitudes of a lot of Catholic communities are very harmful to me and to a lot of people who I care about. But one church is attempting to change things without waiting for the Vatican. Reverend Eileen Matthew leads the beloved inclusive Catholic community in Urbana. I mean, it feels like a bit of a trap because the church will say, we love you just the way you are, and once we get you here, we hope you'll change. Formed in 2021, Beloved advertises itself as being open to all, which includes having an open communion table, a trait not shared by traditional parishes. 
These factors, combined with Matthew being a woman priest, mean the church is not part of the local archdiocese. We consider ourselves to exist sort of on the margins of the inside of the church. And while they welcome the trans community, the National Conference of Bishops in the U.S. does not accept the idea of gender transitions. So we don't forgo our identity as Roman Catholics, but we do believe that we are called to stand against injustice within the church. But last week, the Vatican announced that it would be permissible for transgender people to be baptized or be godparents, as long as doing so didn't cause scandal or confusion. Matthew says that while the statement leaves a lot to be desired and raises unresolved questions, it is still a step forward. But Price doesn't see it that way. It's like not up for you to decide if you're causing a scandal or not. It's up for people who are historically against you and will do everything to find a loophole, essentially, to exclude you. Unless someone is converting to Catholicism as an adult, he says most trans Catholics have already been baptized as babies and that the proclamation doesn't make any real changes. To hear people just praise this sort of thing as progressive, it, it, it is like a slap in the face. The Catholic Church is also in the midst of conducting a multi-year synod, where they consider topics facing the entire denomination, like whether LGBTQ plus Catholics will be welcomed. Though the process will continue until next year, the most recent report, released at the end of October, only vaguely mentions identity and sexuality among a list of other unresolved issues. The Archdiocese of Peoria, which includes Champaign-Urbana, did not respond to requests for comment. I'm Owen Henderson. We're out of time for our statewide this week. Thanks for joining us and be sure to tune in next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Find us where you get your podcasts and through the NPR One app. You can also find our shows through this station's website and at nprillinois.org. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.